Um, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Kate Moss. I'm a novelist, a playwright, and non-fiction uh, writer, and uh, very delighted to be a member of the board of the National Theatre. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you to our wonderful third temporary space, The Shed. Um, this is the final one in a series of talks that have been happening at lunchtime called Scene Changes, which have been looking at all the things that happen off stage, behind the scenes, and how theatre has changed in so many ways in the past 50 years. Now, you've all had a sheet, um, so you know that you have a stellar panel in front of you here. Um, and what we're going to be talking today is about how music has changed over the past 50 years in terms of how it's used in theatre, Everybody points out that they cannot remember what it was like 50 years ago. So don't insult the panel by assuming they were there at the beginning. Um, but also how it's gone from the sense of, are you a composer, are you a sound designer? How things have changed between the balance of live music, incidental music, and of course, what technology can and can't do. Um, so I'm going to start with Matthew Scott, who, hello Matthew, at the hello. far end there, um, who is head of music here at the National. He's also an associate at Chichester Festival Theatre and has worked in many theatres. He is, is, of course, a composer also. Um, but Matthew, can I just ask by a, probably a very basic question? Um, is the amount of music in a play, when it's not a musical, something that the director decides, that the playwright decides? Do they come to you right at the beginning and say, I want to do a play and I know I'm going to need a bit of incidental music, or do they come to you and say, the, the, the stage is yours, you decide how much music is Is this me as composer or me as head of music? You here? can be <laughs> head of music, you can be a composer, you can be yourself. Wow. Or maybe not, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it is lunchtime, ladies and gentlemen. Nasty business, <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, it's all about collaboration. So it's about discussion and, and deciding each other. I, I always as a theatre composer, I always regarded myself as um, an extension of the ears of the director, more or less. And some directors will tell you and make it very clear that had they got time, they would have written the music themselves. <laughs> so, so you think, well, OK, that's fair enough, I can live with that. Um, and you hopefully can do, deliver something uh, more accurate in terms of the wishes of the, of, of, of your t of the rest of your team. Um, and suge helpful suggestions can come from all sorts of directions. Um, uh, do people, I mean, a, a director or a writer, do they come, however, thinking, I know that I want there to be a substantial amount of music or just incidental music? I mean, how does that happen in terms of proportion? It varies a huge amount, okay? Um, and some of the projects you go into, you think it's going to be an awful lot, and eventually you end up with very, very little. And, um, but the, the, the very little can have tremendous impact. Um, and that, I, that's true in, in, in theatre as well as in um, sort of television and film, I think. Stephen, you did the first Prime Suspect, didn't you, for television? Yeah. Do you remember? And there was one queue in it, I think? No, I think there were more like eight. Okay, but they were... The others were very quiet. But they were... <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Warbeck. Yeah. No, that was, a, that was a, a thing that happens with, um, with a dub. You, you're not really in control of that in... We're not talking about film and television, but briefly. Mm. Um, you're not always in control of the level at which music's played. So I remember the first Prime Suspect, often the, the music was quieter than the electric windows of the cars. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so, well, um, I just remember there being very little, but what there was, was tremendously effective. And I thought mm. it changed, it changed mm. certainly the way I thought about it. I, I don't think the... Um, it, it's tricky if you get a playwright who specifies, specifies music. 
what actual tracks yeah. or, or clips. Um, because some, sometimes that could, sometimes that could be a very good thing, and sometimes it could be a, a, a bit intimidating, but also really not helpful. Um, there are, I mean, it's getting the rights apart from anything else can yeah. be a nightmare, can't it? That's right. Mm. Um, if you specify a particular song or something, and you can't clear the performing rights for a you know, pre-existing piece mm. of material, but then there are other playwrights who. Um, Specify. I, I worked on a, a, a play, a first performance, first production of a play by Brian Friel called Fathers and Sons, mm -hmm. and he had specified things like, I want the theme from sort of second string quartet of Beethoven, the, vi the viola theme in the slow movement, but I want it played on a solo cello. <laughs> this was there as a sort of as a stage direction. And I thought, well, okay, I'm, I'm, this, is a this is a great playwright. I'm not going to argue with him. So did what he asked, and, and then sort of prepared a number of alternatives. Um, and we, by the end of the production process, we hadn't gone with a single one of his suggestions, and yet all his suggestions were really precise. Hmm. Um, well, as a writer, do you, you know, I wonder if that's actually his impulse. Some of the things he thought he was writing had partly come from imagining or hearing that music, yeah. but actually that's not a play, that's, that's a one step before the play, yeah, isn't it? I think he's, he's looking for a way to characterise a particular individual, or a, I mean, it's had a, a character who just would not stay, stop playing the cello. So it was, um, <laughs> uh, uh, so it was quite specific. But you also, what you're coming close to is the thing you said near the beginning, which is the collaboration thing. And what we all do is we, we give part of our job and part of our responsibility to others. And the creative team in anything is the sum of all those imaginations. Mm. So the writer and the director give you the right to bring your imagination to the project. Um, similarly, I might say, uh, supposing it's got to be a blues guitar score has been arrived at, either by discussion or it's been laid down by the, the playwright as an idea. I'm not going to be able to write all the little complicated nuances in what a wonderful blues guitarist does. So that guitarist, the imagination mm. of that guitarist, will also be a huge creative part of what's happening. So we're all, we're like in a chain or a clump or however you want to think of it. And, and our work affects, it, it all affects each other. And we're very much like um, a team of builders. So um, you might think of an artist as somebody who puts up fantastic sculptures in a park. And we're much more like kitchen fitters. <laughs> so we know that that is the space, and we know that they want formica, or they want pine, or they want granite. And we say, well, could the granite be unpolished and have, you know? Mm. So we make a case for how we're going to do it, but we are given the space mm. to create something as artisans, perhaps, rather mm. than. And would you <coughs> um, read a script in an early stage, or would you talk to the director or the writer or the other people involved? I mean, what's your particular process? Is it the words on the page that inspires you as a composer? Um, theoretically, you, well, you would try to read. We're the recording script. this. No, <laughs> <laughs> Just want to warn I mean, you. <laughs> no, there have, uh, there's a play, um, I've worked on a few plays and haven't read the script. But I've seen enough rehearsals to know what's happening because you've seen the play. And for me, and I imagine it's different for everybody, um, it's definitely not on the page that I get the inspiration. Mm. I don't draw my inspiration from the page. Unless you have to write stuff in advance, which you sometimes do. For example, if there are songs or dances, you may have to write stuff in advance. But the chemistry of the rehearsal room has a huge impact on what you create. 
And the energy in that room between all the various people, the actors and the director principally, and the text, those three things, that's what I imagine for most of us, that's yeah. what sets us mm. off. Would, it, would a director say anything quite as, um, not crude, but um, pragmatic, shall we say, as X has got a really quick costume change, so I need at least eight bars here. Yeah. Can it be yeah. that pragmatic, <laughs> yeah. Isabel? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you get, you know, you know what you're sort of, you know that you've, maybe you've got music at the top of the show, sort of you know you've got the sort, of, the sort of basic format, but then definitely I think now, certainly, with scene changes and things like that, particularly when, also with costume changes, but also now set designs, you know, they're, they're becoming sort of huge and really elaborate. And so you do have to kind of cover quite a lot sort of here and there. And definitely, I think it can be really specific. Yeah, you know, we need eight bars, four bars, 16. And, and does that make you feel less of a composer and more of a designer? Is that where the difference comes, if there was a sort of pragmatism to it? I think, yeah, no, I mean, I think um, the composer and the designer, so the composer is the concept and is the composer, I think, and the sort of, um, and the ideas and, and, and what you, and sort of creatively what you can um, kind of build there. And then, yeah, and then when I think you are having to be more specific, you can be much more um, sort of academic about it. And, but that's and the technique, isn't it? The, te yeah. the technique is to make it work yeah. and try to hide the, the try to hide the process. Yeah. Um, Peter Grimes, um, Benjamin Britten's opera, the, the Storm interlude, when they, the first production of it in 1945 was too short for them to achieve the scene change necessary behind the curtain. So he had to, he had to add something like 25 seconds. Mm. And in a letter he says it's like building a cathedral and then you, you look at it and it's finished and some bloke turns up with a brick and says, um, this has got to go in there somewhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and, and still, and without, without, without the thing falling down, yeah. you know, which is... Yeah. Uh, but the, I think that's, the, that's a lot of the satisfaction, isn't it? That's a, yeah, it's a great mm. technical part of being, yeah. Yeah, being, being able to do that at short notice is you can take you know you can be frustrated by it because well, you've created this perfect form mm. or so you think, and Good. then yeah, it has to, to alter it itself to conserve the production. But, um, but um, Adam, ju yeah. just to um, you know we're, we're talking about incidental music uh, at the moment, but obviously one of the things that many of the national uh, audiences will know you for is London Road. Now, that's a completely different sort of composition, isn't it? Because the, it was fundamentally part of the creative process and the story that was being told and a decision to yeah. tell a story in a new way. So well, can you is. talk a bit about that? It is, although I sort of feel very lucky that I'd been composing... I spent most of my career before London Road composing incidental music and designing sound for plays. And some of those plays had sort of expanded formally to reach a, a point where you could almost describe them as semi-musicals uh, in, in sections. Uh, of them, so I sort of felt lucky that my experience so far had led up to that. But yeah, you, when you're writing songs um, and you're sort of in a co-authorial position, you are actually in charge of the storytelling to a much greater extent mm. than you are when you're collaborating with a room full of people on a play. Although I wouldn't want to diminish the importance of what you do in a play because the way you can turn a narrative corner in a scene change mm. is something which can colour the whole of the next scene and also what you've just seen uh, in a completely um, individual way, uh, which wouldn't have existed if you hadn't brought that thing to the table. Um, and in fact, those are my favourite moments when, when I'm working on plays, when I sort of when I realise there's an opportunity to do something and I have a clear idea of a particular mood I want to go from and a particular situation I want to hint at coming along, uh, where I kind of feel that I've snuck in and become a, a secret co-author in some yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, underhand way. Yeah. Yeah. Matthew. The music's the only, the only weapon in the arsenal 
really, that can do anything about time, isn't it, as well. So you can control the passing of time. Not, not obviously not physically, but you can control the way it's perceived with music, and I'm not sure you can do that with anything else. Can I think, you? Well, set is about space. Music, yeah. music, and lighting to lighting. a degree are both about time and space. Yeah. Because with I mean, with sound in particular, you can create a huge uh, expanse, uh, a, a vista within a tiny theatre if you want, mm. and, or with a large orchestra, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but but lighting sort of has has the edge over us, I think, with space. <laughs> but we perhaps I have the edge over lighting with, with the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, slow developments in in lighting cues can be so amazingly effective, um, and particularly, I mean, collaborating with a wonderful lighting designer is is an amazing experience as a composer because if you've got if you're working with somebody who's sensitive to music, you sort of you watch what he or she is doing, and they what they listen to what you're doing, and together, without even speaking, sometimes you can arrive at a moment of sonne lumiere which perhaps lasts mm. five minutes mm. and you know the audience is only semi-conscious of what's happened but incredibly influenced mood, mood wise by it uh, and I find that very satisfying. Mm. But what is the um, process by which you have an idea so something like this house which was an extraordinary piece of work here then suddenly there's there's music music in it um, you know, that, that's one of the things that was so extraordinary, I think. So how does something like that come about that is outside of the normal expectation of an audience or even a writer? Was that part of it in the first place I think or is that your if idea, I, Steve? If I can remember it right, which I possibly can't. Um, I remember the phone call. <laughs> How many of you saw this house? I remember um, you ringing yeah, me yeah. and saying, oh, by the way, you know it's, uh, it's two hymns and, some fa and, and the sound of Big Ben. Um, there's also a live rock band. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, that's right. And, and yes, I, I, sort of, I sort of sat there at my desk here looking over the, the smoking ruins of my budget. But <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I wanted four and I had three. Yeah, well, OK, OK. But you had a, you had a rock band. In what I was, did, what, what was I definitely wanted another guitar. Oh. You're quite competitive, um, you composers, aren't you? I'm, I'm starting well, no, to I mean, get it. These two are. The, yeah, exactly. the line-up line properly should have been two guitars, bass and drums. But, you know but you're not bitter, are you? Not bitter. Not bitter. No. <laughs> That's why he says he can't remember it. No, so how what, with that play, I think, in the script, there is a, the David Bowie song, Five Years, is mentioned. I think there's about three songs specified. There was a couple we cut, in fact. There may be a four yeah, or five. Yeah, but they were, they were sung by drunken choruses of MPs, I think, exactly. in, 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 the, in the draft I read. Yes. Now, the, the thing about that... The That's question, real life, Matthew. Where did the, <laughs> exactly. Where, did the, where does the idea come from for the music? In the case of that... Some of the ideas are in the script. It says, they sing five years. So you then thrash out, you have, oh, let's all sing five years. It doesn't seem to lend itself, in my view, you may well disagree, to a four-part arrangement. It seems to work better with one person. And you make very practical decisions based on the fact that there's a man in the room. What's his name? You know, thing. Phil Daniels. Oh, yeah, yeah, Phil Daniels. Phil Daniels, who's <laughs> earth-shatteringly good at performing a rock song and you think well what get him to do it mm -hmm. and then you, mm. you you actually end up going the other way around so you sort of find the dramatic justification for something which is the obvious choice you think well why is it right that he does his character's dead has he come back as his character or does he come so there's all sorts of mm. very practical and not kind of theoretical artistic decisions he's the best bloke to sing it mm. and then you're sitting there perhaps bored in the tech and, and you say to the director don't you think we could do with something really loud under this bit? <laughs> and maybe 
nine times out of ten, it's a rubbish idea. But occasionally he says, yes. Yes, let's do something huge here. And you just have these, these ideas kind of flying about, and it's all hit and miss, and something settles in and is really good. And I vow to thee, my country, which was five minutes long at one point, everyone sitting in the tech secretly knowing it's way too long. And nobody wants to upset the fact that the actors have put weeks <laughs> of work into singing when they're not singing. Yeah. That I've struggled for an hour doing a four-part arrangement that Matthew's taught. And, uh, you know, that you, you have to throw your work away. You have to... And, and some of it sticks and some of it doesn't. But it, it's a very, in a way, probably actually not true of everyone else, I've, it's a very impure kind of form where you try stuff out or you have ideas. Ah, it's got to be solo cello. And then two days later you think, that's yeah, a terrible, terrible idea. Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but that's yeah. really interesting because it, it sounds as if you're under an incredible amount of pressure in the way that a script writer might be to just come up with things on the spot, even write up as close as a tech. Well, That's no, extraordinary. I'm you, you don't <laughs> let's, go into the, let's go into the builder's analogy again and see right. who, how late have you delivered. Well, uh, I'm often taking the music to them just before the, they play it, mm. usually more often than not. Because mm. you see it, and you see, like Adam says, you see the lighting's affected you, and you think, I know. Scribble it out, take it to the band, they put it in the tech, then it gets written out neatly and fine-tuned later. But often that's the best moment, because mm. up till then you've had less certainty. At that point, you really have, you really are seeing most of it. Because, Isabel, you're about to go into a, sorry, I'm about to go into a tech for Leah at Chichester yes. next week, aren't you? Yes. So are you anticipating this sort of last minute, or is it because it's a, a well-known play, if you like, with the text and characters that people know, there isn't quite the same sort of last minute creative juicing up, if you like? Well, I think I try and have a kind of bag of, I don't know, sort of like little things, just think, you know, in the tech, that if somebody does say, oh, you know, we suddenly need a bit of underscore there, I can say, okay, yes, actually, we, we have it. But um, it, it varies a lot the way I work. I tend to kind of try and get a lot of the music into the room before we get to the sort of tech period so we can sort of see again like what sticks and what, what's working. Um, the latest, I put, yeah, I think... Um, I've also been in the situation where, you know, we've sort of tried stuff and then I've arrived at the theatre and seen the set at the beginning of Tech and just thought, no way, absolutely not. It's got to, we've got to completely change everything. Mm. It's got to be, we've got to strip everything down or, and, then, and then be writing, you know, actually in the space, um, which happens very quickly. Because and it's is that something to do with the acoustic or just the sort of feel of the, it's of just the auditorium? It's the feel of it, mm. I think, and it's the feel and that whole process of the weeks of rehearsal when you've been sort of like absorbing it, sort of almost, you know, directly and also subliminally, sort of even, you know, when you're just making a cup of coffee, sort of letting the sort of ideas um, sort of swish around. But then I find that, and that sort of, you know, you'd be writing things, but I find I'm quite sort of slow in that sense. And then it really is the sort of like three days before you actually get there. And then it actually in the tech, that it all does just come. It comes very, very quickly. It just mm. Yeah, that process of fomenting is very yeah, important, exactly. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And you that to let your ideas while. settle. Mm. And maybe so write a few things and project them before you even play them to anybody. Yeah, you have to get those ones unblock out of the, the way. tubes. And yeah. are you yeah. there, Adam, all the way through a process? Or do you come in and go out I'm, again? I'm I mean, rarely there all the way through mm. a process for a play. Um, uh, I, I work a lot with Michael Grandage, who likes me there in week one, because he covers everything in week one, and then I've sort of seen everything kind of on its feet and as a first draft, 
and I've, made, I've, I've written myself a detailed plan in that period, which is based on the, the sort of amazing alchemy that happens when you've got all the people together in a room mm. who are involved with the production. Mm. Uh, I do come with my own ideas. I mean, I read I, la last week I was doing a first week of rehearsals for Henry V, and I sort of came with a, a, a preformed idea of, of the play, which I hadn't really d talked about with Michael before last week, uh, which was more of a sort of total warfare, Henry as dictator kind of a, a, an idea. Um, and it became clear over the course of rehearsing that Jude Law wants to play it much more from the point of view of a, a king with a conscience, somebody who is actually tortured by moral matters, thinks on them deeply um, before deciding to go to bloody war with France. Mm. Um, but what that means is that I sort of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's basically a period production. And so your mind swings around to find a way of doing music that suggests the medieval period without being slavish to it, because otherwise you might as well just stick on a CD, frankly. Mm. Mm. Um, but which also somehow reflects that character choice rather than being something dominating and overpowering, mm. which medieval music could do very well. Yes, yes. I mean, Matthew, you, you mentioned your burning budgets. Um, with your head of music hat on, mm. um, do you have this very straightforward thing we can spend this much on the sound and therefore this will dictate whether it's a computer is CD, three-piece band, 25-piece band, you know, or can it come creatively and then the budgets are massaged around it to make the music work? Are we being recorded? We can take anything out. You don't want to go on there, can't we? Yeah, yeah. I, I, well, okay, I think... Um, hmm. The answer is it's a, there's a bit more flexibility. In this, in this particular organisation, there's a bit more flexibility than that in the way that, uh, yes, there's a, there's a total amount of money for music in a year, but that's 22 productions. Right. Now, OK, so if somebody can make a, 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 decent, art, a, a decent artistic case for more resources, um, or rather give me the ammunition so I can make a decent case, even just to myself, then, then, then it can adjust the amount that's spent. I mean, here, we... we, we um, this is a very artistically led theatre um, mm -hmm. compared to, say, well, certainly compared to television, for instance. It's so, you know, you can devote a, more, more resources to a particular production and then pray that later in the year there might be one which needs very little. Right. But if you, if you budget on a model and then you're continuously adjusting your model, I suppose. Um, it, I hate saying no. It's really difficult. Um, so I will try to find... Um, Try, try continuously to invent, try to find new solutions to old problems. So, um, you know, some, if the music doesn't have to be live, where in a, in a show, or it, it, then I would, I would rather use that money to a show where it, where it does have to be live, and continuously adjust. What, but what about what about a show like One Man Two Gubs, where, you know, there's the wonderful live band that really yeah. animates the auditorium? Um, was that there already, or was that one of those? Light bulb moments. Um, you probably can't remember now. There's been no, well, so no, much I do, I, I, I do, but 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 like all memories, mine is sort of slightly unreliable. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I remember I remember talking to Nick Heiner about the Commedia dell'arte thing, and about and I, and I said, would there be songs? Because he at the time was talking about sort of almost vaudevillian episodes in between the scenes, and I I, I said, would there be songs? Would they involve songs? Um, and he said, well, yeah, maybe. Um, I think probably it was the fact that Grant Olding, the composer, nailed the songs so yeah. well, so yeah. early. And Grant did these wonderfully accurate demos. A, a demo is a rough recording um, 
normally made in a home studio just to illustrate your ideas in more detail. And he did these really brilliant ones. Um, and I think, I think Nick ran with that. I mean, like any other great director, he's, he's looking, he's, he, while, while transmitting great ideas to the cast and everything else, he's continuously on receive as well. And I think that's the way it went. Um, th there, there was a difficulty, of course, I mean, uh, yes, you wouldn't, you wouldn't normally anticipate, well, no, you would do. I mean, you, you'd know that you were going to use music in a production of a play like that. Um, the size of the band, of course, is kind of dictated as part of design. I mean, it, it's the Beatles model. So it's, okay, they start mm. playing skiffle music, but they're well into Beatles by the, by the, by the mm. interval, by the, the pre-show, the um, interval set, um, which kind of dictates the lineup. I mean, it, e it even got down to the stage where part of the Beatles thing was the fact that Paul McCartney is left-handed and John Lennon was not, which meant that they could align themselves alongside a microphone, alongside a microphone and the convenient, the, the guitar necks would go in opposite directions. And yeah. who's to say how important that might have been very important in, that, mm -hmm. in, that, in the development of those vocal harmonies. And we scratched our heads trying to find a left-handed bass guitarist <laughs> who looked, you know. I mean, and, and that's where, it, again, it becomes grittily practical. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Stephen, you went through a stage of, of using, um, inventing the instruments as well, didn't you? I, yeah, I still do that, either make or have instruments made. I have a theory which is more true, I think, of film than theatre music, but that each production or each project needs a kind of something you might call a signature sound. So it might be that it's symphony mm. orchestra with ukulele or um, bottle, bottles, blown bottles with um, brass quartet. Or so, so that, that actually, that's not very good. That would be hard to balance. Well, I remember a boiler. Being hung up at one point, a large, large lump of metal. Oh yeah, we've hung up boilers, and I've used gas piping and stuff like that. So, but I, I think quite often that because each project is so individual and so different, it's nice not to fall on. I like not to do a string quartet. I'd like to do a string quartet with a harmonium or mm. a string mm. quartet with a tenor banjo in it. Mm. Um, have you, have you yeah, ever invented an instrument that that you think is new and that has got a life? Uh, the um, <laughs> bass dulcimer is quite good, and it's <laughs> nice. been used in a lot of production. It's, it's about two metres long, and it's two-sided. It's got piano strings on it. If I see them cropping up all over the place, <laughs> <laughs> I'll know who to we'll play. We'll take that <laughs> off the tape as well. <laughs> and, and you can either strike the strings um, with soft beaters or hard beaters, or you can bow them, and you can get lots of very oh, nice lovely. harmonics out yeah. of it. So it's a bit abstract, and also it's, it's quite nice because you don't immediately put your finger on it and think, oh, that's a piano, or mm. that's a... It's, yeah, it's so it becomes very distinctive exactly. to that particular yeah. production. Well, I, 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 went, I went to yeah. see a production of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream down at the Bristol Old Vic a little while back. Music was written by Dave Price, who is uh, writing for morning, from morning to midnight for us mm -hmm. at the moment. Is he a viola player? Never said mind, that with a rather no. sort of disdainful air. No, 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 no. Apologies oh, to oh, 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 That's a very cruel everywhere. and hurtful question. I don't yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, No, no, but I, it said in the programme, uh, I was sitting there reading the programme, and it said uh, one of the players, one of the instruments they were playing was a propanophone. Right. I thought, I don't know what it says. Propane. And what it says was a propane cylinder hit with a hammer. <laughs> Given oh, a fancy that would name. Be a horrible yeah. noise. Well, it, it worked very well, <laughs> yeah. I think. Well, it's probably, it's probably all the stuff in the wood. So, um, the industrial dream. The industrial dream, yes, exactly. Yeah. The version, not, not the Arcadian version of Midsummer Night's <laughs> Dream, presumably. No. Um, 
when we were all talking beforehand, it seemed to me that, firstly, I'd never thought about how much pressure you under to deliver quickly and sometimes change things quickly. And then it came out that most of you had had that terrible moment when you arrived and realised you'd done the wrong score for the wrong play. I wonder if you might be no, prepared to share <laughs> some of those. <laughs> well, Matthew, at least. I, I was trying to shield your modesty with a bit of... Uh, it's too late. <laughs> too late. No, I, I, it was, I, yes, OK, it was a, 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 this particular incident uh, was down at Salisbury Playhouse and uh, Jonathan Church, who was the artistic director at the time, was directing a double bill, which was a, a small Moliere farce. I think it was a Moliere farce. It was a, so, so, um, that sort of period. And a production of the rehearsal by Henri. Uh, and the idea was that they, they were cross-cast and they play in rep in a little season. And I've been to rehearsals quite a lot and, and I prepared... Um, prepared a bit of, of the second play, but had done a lot of work on this score for the first one. So I turned up in Salisbury uh, at the Tech, which is when we put everything together, I think, uh, and looked at the set and thought, that's <laughs> not what I was expecting. <laughs> and of course, I'd got ready the score for the wrong play, um, <laughs> which, which meant, which meant, because I thought, well, it's okay, during the, during the technical period of the first play, I can do the music for the second one. And got completely round the back. And you end up, well, you end up um, apologising a lot, blushing quite a bit, and, um, <laughs> and just go back and work your, work your night in the hotel and, and come up with something else. But I, it's, yeah, you're under pressure. But that's, again, that's where the technique comes in. There's something, about, there's something about the moment when, I mean, I, I, have a, I hate being ill-prepared, but I also quite like, I quite like it when something happens and you are for, I am forced to do something quickly. Yes. Mm. A, because it's good for technique, hmm. and B, because there's, uh, if you are well prepared as well, you can forgive yourself, because you know, this was unavoidable, and now I have to save the day by doing something really quickly. And in a way, yes. th uh, there's a weight of anxiety that mm. leaves you, because you know the only choice you have is to be spontaneous yes. and to yes. compose in real time, as it were, rather than in conceptual preparatory time. Yeah. And it can be quite exciting. And it can be the best things yeah. you've written, can't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> do, do you think actually sometimes creatively it's almost better to be in terror? when you're doing it. Uh, <laughs> you have to I'm, not, I'm exaggerating, you understand. You know, we're I, in a theatre. See, I don't think we're talking about terror. I mean, you might be, but I don't excitement. think... Yeah. It's excitement. Mixed with a bit of terror, maybe. I think a bit of fear, yeah. <laughs> the like theatre doesn't, isn't very frightening, in a way, because you have a long period of time, and you think that, OK, I've written something quickly to solve that problem. If mm. I don't like it or the director doesn't like it, we can do something else, do something else tomorrow. That's one of the wonderful things about it. You've got a rehearsal period or a technical rehearsal period. You've got a dress rehearsal or two. You've perhaps got some previews, usually. Um, so it can evolve, and mm. it usually does evolve. Mm. And, and I, I love that, and it's, it's one of the things which makes theatre more enjoyable uh, than film work, because it's film work, I think, I would admit to something bordering on terror. When you play, you've got a whole orchestra, you play the piece of music, you look at the director and the, you know the director's thinking, oh my God, I didn't <laughs> think it was going to sound like that. And you think, what do I do? Have you had this experience? Oh God, yes. Oh. Thousands of pounds just sitting there. For the next them, three hours yeah. only. Thinking, yeah. Yeah. how can you make it more frightening, less yeah. sad, more... I find that all much too lugubrious. And you think, oh, okay, take the mutes off. Still sounds lugubrious. Okay, look, well, I'll write four more bars and we'll play it at a faster metronome. But it, that, it's that's that basic, bordering on yeah. 
terror, whereas theatre is a lovely evolution over a period of... Mm. Yeah, it is. I mean, just going, going back to the idea of how much things have changed in the past 50 years, you know, this is part of the 50-year celebration of the National. Um, as I said, nobody is old enough to quite remember, although it is Stephen's birthday today, um, so I think he should have a round of applause for his birthday, obviously. Um, but, you know, Stephen is a composer and Matthew is a composer. Obviously, you will have seen quite a lot of changes from when you first started working in theatre. Is technology the fundamental one to that, or is it just more an attitude about what music is in theatre and how much more it can achieve? What do you think? Um, well, what technology does do is it, it allows you to illustrate an idea at a much earlier stage more accurately. Um, in terms of texture, a particular... Yeah, but whereas yeah. in the old days, for instance, it would be quite hard to convince <coughs> somebody... Well, no, you, 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 you presented it as best you could, which might be banging it out on a piano which is fine, but that, that's very restricting in terms, of, in terms of your musical imagination. It's dependent on how good a pianist you are. It's also dependent on, on how the whole thing works. If you're, if you're going to do a score that you are going to do a very ethereal score entirely for vocals, a piano is, is really yes. not much help. Yeah. Whereas any, all the technology has, has now allowed you to actually, not only to illustrate, but also to deliver a score. Um, in, in a way but in some respects, that we're going backwards a little bit when, with the use of sample libraries, I feel. I mean, we're, 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 we're now enabled to bring a full orchestral sound mm. to you know, a, a, a play with limited resources, but you have to be very careful how you handle that. It doesn't necessarily suit the medium, um, and it's not particularly good for music when you're putting real musicians out of work. Mm. Um, yeah. And you know, having done a couple of shows like that in my time, and also shows where I use real really good musicians, there is no comparison. Mm. And uh, as more and more I realise you have to fight for that every step of the way, you know, even if it's well, only two musicians. Well, that's that Stephen's point the about, the, about the blues guitarist. Yeah, and the, the sum yeah. of the imaginations. You've got all those yeah. imaginations Absolutely. rather than just your imagination. But also music, music down the millennia has been a social thing. It's been about people getting together and mm. one voice starting and another voice joining and eventually you've got yeah, ten voices. Part. And they've all got this concept in their head, which is the structure of the music, and they're all sticking to it and collaborating together as real people. Mm. And software offers you a sort of ghost of that, um, not the real thing. You know, we can get close no, to it, but it's not the real thing. There's no, a very sure, interesting aspect of it as well. Well, there's two things I'd like to say about it. One is that, of course, you can do mock-ups or demos, as they're known, or whatever you want to call them, which is a representation of the music in advance, scored for something like the samples of the instruments you're going mm -hmm. to take. But cynically and protectively of one's own work, I find that it's a kind of hostage thing goes on. So everyone then has a view, what would happen if you did that and that and that? Whereas if you keep it a bit secret <laughs> and you say, well, it's going to be something with um, violin, um, but I I'm going to put clothes pegs on the bridge so it's really closed down sound. Um, that sounds quite interesting. And, uh, and you don't have to kind of try and give it away. And also there's a normalising reasonableness that comes in with using samples if you're not careful. I know I've got a good muted string sample. Sound, it's going to sound mm. great. I haven't got a muted trumpet sample. My sample library is rubbish. So I won't use a muted trumpet because the director won't know what it sounds like. So you're kind of... You're, sometimes Limiting your composition yourself. can be dictated by the technical 
skills or facilities of you and manipulating samples. And also, there are good sample libraries out there, and you know people tend to find out which are the best things for the, for certain tasks, yeah. and everything ends up sounding a bit sounding the same, same. timbrally. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. But also, I'd sorry, go on, Stephen. Uh, that's no. just the last point of that. It won't take a minute. Um, Richard Eyre, who who I did worked on Henry the Fourth Part One and Part Two for BBC last year. I love working. I love working with loads of people, but I love working with him because. He comes around, he looks pretty bored, and you play him tunes on the piano, and, and Matthew knows I'm not particularly good piano player. Um, and, but you say, that's going to be muted strings, and that's going to be muted trumpet. And he basically, he's doing that thing as he's trusting the people he's chosen to do the job. Right. So he's saying, I want you to write the music for my plays. Mm. Go on, write the music. And then yeah. he'll suddenly say, that theme's too bleak. So there are a few insightful things mm. said to you. But basically... It's the same as I don't micromanage a clarinetist. I say, ah, that, that, what was mm. that? F sharp, what was it? <laughs> Isn't there another fingering? For yeah. No, that one. Yeah. You, you, you let the other person interpret your work. It so really I, helps. I love that. It's much him. more satisfying as well when you're given that responsibility, just meaning you're completely trusted with it. But also, just going back to samples, I find also when you're doing that, you can get, I don't know, I don't know, but I find that if I've got a sort of string sample and I'm doing something, you can get a bit lazy, but that, you know, you just say, okay, you, that, that, that's a nice chord or whatever, and that's How nice can chord. I weigh down these keys yeah, and exactly. go away make a cup of tea? And, and then, <laughs> but then it's sort of That's how you do it, is it? <laughs> when you go back and you actually, you sort of like, you think, okay, well, that's the demo. And then it goes back to what you were saying about having, you know, giving it a unique sound, giving each a unique sound. Mm. You go, you know, you have your pencil and you think, actually, that, those strings, okay, the, the chord's great, but the, the effect now, the movement that you can't do with just a pad. Um, I, think it's, I think it's very dangerous to just be using samples, definitely. Yeah. Well, uh, yes, well, th th this is new to me. I've never even heard of samples, so this is fantastic. Right. Mm. You know, go away. With, um, I want to open it up to the audience in a couple of minutes just for any questions. Um, but before I do that, can I just ask each of you a, a question about something you're really proud of? You know, I've seen... You know, you've got extraordinary work between the four of you as composers. Matthew, most recently, obviously, one of the Arturo Ui, which was at Chichester and is now in the West End. I would say that what you've done with the music there has, has made that production, the extraordinary production it is. And I just wonder if you could each say one production that you really feel that you've just got it so right. You know, you still feel it's that, that thing that you're really proud of. You don't have to say Arturo. I was just saying because I've just seen no, it. Well, it the, one I, the, the one I, the trouble is, is that it's, a, it's a, because you are. We're in a kind of like a parallel art form. Um, uh, I did music for a production here um, called Ting Tang Mine, which was a play by Nick Dark, um, set in Cornwall about um, a, a accidental arrival of sudden wealth and stuff. And um, I was very proud of the music. And um, uh, and the play was deeply hated, oh, yeah. and that I was a bit depressed about that yeah. because because the, the the myth is you can reuse stuff and and it's, it is a myth it's it's it's, it's yeah. anti artistic and it and it feels it feels if you have to it always feels uncomfortable I, I, you know, I think yeah. Yeah, yeah and so that that was the one I was pleased with. Um, so wonderful work, but somehow in the wrong home. Yeah, and every now and again, I rather sadly take a copy of it down from the shelf and look at it and think. <laughs> <laughs> right now, but you, now you all know to listen to it. Adam. Have you have you had any of these either sad experiences yeah. or happy ones? <laughs> um, I suppose I suppose Red, which I did at the Donmar uh, uh, in two thousand and nine uh, slash ten, which was about Mark Rothko, the artist, mm -hmm. 
um, and I absorbed a lot. Of, I listed loads of listening to kind of avant-garde New York music from the 60s, and um, and then sort of went, which is what I always do. And then I go away and kind of do what I want to do, but with that in with that in mind. Um, and I looked at loads of his paintings as well, and I sort of entered a really meditative mode. Oh dear. And uh, and it was sort of music that was half music, half sound, uh, and it was yeah, it was a bit of a sort of wacky experience, but it re it really suited the play in the end. Um, and the, and the other one would be Arcadia, which I did at Northampton in two thousand and two, um, and I I was really pleased with the way I'd managed to go backwards and forwards from I think it's eighteen oh nine to the present day, um, stylistically within scene changes and. Mm. All the stuff I did in regional theatres at the start of my career involved huge scene changes for some reason. Sort of we like a chaise long in the provinces, I, you see. I, think I say that as a Chichester person. Yeah, it was, it was all the props <laughs> that needed to be got on and off. Often meant that yeah. you know you had five minutes to fill between between scenes. So uh, it's, it's great training for a composer, and also it gives you a chance to come into the foreground and experiment with more complex mm. forms. Yeah. And discover your voice. Time is you've done some projects where you've yeah. used huge amounts of material. You know, Paradise Lost, which you did at Northampton. Yeah. Used enormous amounts of music, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've done, yeah, the, uh, apart from Michael Grandage, the other director I've done most of my work with is Rupert Gould, yeah. who is sort of the polar opposite in terms of um, preparedness. I mean, he, he works really hard and has lo lots and lots of ideas, but they only ever reach their specific form in the penultimate week of rehearsals or the final <laughs> week of rehearsals or even the tech. Yeah. So it's a great training in, in being ready for, on the one hand, being ready for anything months mm. in advance, and on the other hand, having to knock something up really quickly that nevertheless serves a concept uh, totally. Um, and yeah, Paradise Lost was, a, I mean, it was a dance piece and a play yeah, that's all, right. all in that's one. Right. Yeah. Amazing as versatility. As was Enron, actually, and, and other, other of his yes. oeuvre. Right. Yeah. Isabel. Um, I think it was, it was quite a recent one, actually. It was If Only um, at Chichester in the Minerva, which was, which was such a delightful job. It was just so lovely. It was, um, it was written by David Edgar in a, a sort of political kind of drama. Um, but, and there, was, there were only, there were four of them um, in the cast. <laughs> casting my mind back, uh, four yes. of them in the cast, and um, and it just it was one of those things. I'd been in rehearsals um, for a few weeks, and um, they started off in Spain and ended up in London, and just I was sort of messing around at home writing. I thought, well, how about well, I might just write a little bit of a Latin, just I mean, just sort mm. of try going on that um, down that direction. And I thought it was a bit of a they'll never want, they'll never use this. You know what I mean? It was sort of silly, um, and um, and then played it in the room, and it was just it kind of fit absolutely yeah. brilliantly and I really, really was proud of it. But also it was really fun because there were these monumental scene changes um, that lasted for sort of quite a long time and they had sort of get bits of set on and, and sort of change furniture all around so it really meant that I could mm. sort of really And ride. a car at one point. And I a think, car as well, yeah. But it just meant so when you've got when you've got you know a good few minutes, you can really you can you can really really get your teeth into it and write, and it's not just you know a kind of five seconds of that. It's kind of yeah, I, that was good fun. Stephen, um, uh, two very quick things. One was with Matthew, and it was not my composition. It was Mother Courage for Radio Three, mm. where we <coughs> used the original Dessau music, and it remains a, a lesson. In fact, we talked about it. Was it was a revelation, wasn't it? It was a revelation mm. in what theatre music can be, and I. I thoroughly recommend any of you, if you're directing Mother Courage, use the proper music, the poor <laughs> music, for God's sake. And the other one was Mackinac, which was here with Stephen Daldry, which was great because it was kind of catastrophically iconoclastically noisy and industrial. 
And, and one little very quick anecdote, which is very typical of our work, I think. So they've been rehearsing for weeks like this, and you're gradually introducing bits of music to the rehearsal room. And this very brave violinist improvised under this whole speech. And the actor, who I won't mention, you might be here, but said the terrifying thing. He said, to Stephen, that's the director, Stephen, can I have a word? And there's something about the stress. <laughs> <laughs> here we go. Is that going to go on underneath my speech? <laughs> and I hit the roof. And I've, I've lost my temper three times professionally. I mean, I have at home as well. But <laughs> you know, when somebody's poured a cup of... Well, whatever, anyway. Um, Micromanaging a clarinet is <laughs> yeah, done yeah, wisely. Exactly. <laughs> but, um, I just exploded because this woman, Sonia, had just poured her heart into this improvisation. I said, you have been rehearsing for weeks and getting it wrong and then getting it right. Allow us one rehearsal where we can go wrong. It wasn't right, but we're trying things out. And sometimes that, that is a difficult, we've, we've made it sound like it's all great, and it is pretty great. It's a wonderful privilege to be doing this. Mm. But sometimes you present something, there is a kind of opening of your heart, and you're saying, here's my work. And there needs to be that mutual respect. The actors are often dealt with very carefully. We have to deal with them very carefully. And just once or twice, I think we can explode. Yes. Well, when is, yeah, mm -hmm. is that going to go on? It's, is, just, it's my hand, have, yeah. isn't it? Is that yeah. noise yeah. going to go on? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm forgetting that you're all artists involved yeah, exactly. in that. It's been a great pleasure to listen to you all. I'm in awe of how many different types mm -hmm. of technique and skill you need to have as composers, as sound designers, as artists, as collaborators. So ladies and gentlemen, could you thank this incredible panel? <laughs> Matthew Scott, Adam Thorpe, Isabel Wallace, and Stephen Walker. Thank you very much, guys.